heart disease, stroke, COPD, lymphoma, Alzheimer's, kidney disease. Most of these are among the top 10 global causes of death. And friends, all of these conditions are experienced in our community right now. And we all know that modern medical knowledge and care has advanced leaps and bounds when compared to pre-modern societies. We are aware of so many diseases, conditions, cancers, viruses, but so many of these known diseases still wreak utter havoc on people every single day. We know more about sickness, infection, and disease than any other generation in human history. But we're still just as sick and vulnerable as our ancestors were. Knowing the name of your disease doesn't cure you of it. Knowing what's going on in your body, what to call it, what to expect, does not rid you of your disease. Imagine if it did, though. Imagine, friends, if diagnosis itself was the cure. Imagine the hours of weeping, silence, and shock that would be eliminated if diagnosis itself meant cure. Well, there exists a disease, a global pandemic that still rages on, which plagues every human being on the planet. It's a disease that results in more sorrow, more despair, more violence, and more suffering than any other condition in human history. It's a disease that we struggle with until the day it kills us. A disease we'd rather pretend doesn't exist, and it's a disease that we call sin. Now, my furthest desire this morning is to be glib or cliche. Uh, Sin, as you know, is one of the most well-worn topics of discussion in Christianity. We talk about sin, we read about it, we know about it, but do we really understand the disease that it is? Do we really understand its effects on human beings, on bodies and souls, on the human and non-human world as a whole? And do we really understand the fact that in a very real sense, it's the only disease in history where diagnosis is in large part the cure? Well, this morning we're going to talk about sin and what happens when our disease is diagnosed. And today is the first Sunday of the season of Lent, which is a fitting time to talk about sin. Lent is a time when Christians can journey with Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days until Easter Sunday. Lent is a time when, like Jesus, we reflect on our own humanness, our own mortality. It's a time when we take temptation and sin seriously. 
It's a time of penitence and repentance and humility. Uh, One author writes, and you can see this on your bulletin insert, that Lent is the most realistic season of the Christian year. He says it's a time when we tell the truth about ourselves, our brokenness, our mortality, and nevertheless trust in God's redemptive love. So through the season of Lent, we are going to be walking through some of the biblical psalms. We're going to be switching genres and reading these poems that confront us with our sin, but more importantly, God's love and forgiveness. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 32, a famous poem about forgiveness. I'm going to talk about its content, its genre, and we're going to walk through it, and then we're going to engage in a time of confession ourselves. So that is the plan to start this season of Lent, but before we go any further, friends, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this new chapter of the year. Lord, a time not in which we whip ourselves or are overwhelmed by guilt, but a time when we realistically face the depths of our fallenness, the the layers of brokenness which you try and try to penetrate with your love. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would crack us open. Lord, that you would shower waters on us to soften the soil that it may open and see what's really in there and that we may give it up to you so you can carry it away. Be with us this morning, Lord. I pray that you would draw us through the wilderness closer and closer to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the Psalms, this is Hebrew poetry And we've been in Greek prose narrative in the Gospels, so this is quite a shift. Um, I taught a class here on the Psalms a couple years ago, and we talked about how with poetry, it's less about what it means, and it's more about how it means. In other words, the form of the language itself conveys meaning, and the point is not so much to acquire information, but to experience a certain feeling, a certain set of emotions um, and experiences through the literature. Uh, I just wrote a blog post that reviews some of those ideas from the class, and there's a few copies in the back, and we're going to be walking through the Psalms and paying attention to the, the visceral experience that a poetry leads us into during the season of Lent. So there are many different types of Psalms, even though it's all poetry, In the Psalter, which has 150 psalms or poems, there are different types. And so this psalm, Psalm 32, is a psalm of thanksgiving, believe it or not. And so these these psalms often feature uh, the psalmist thanking God for delivering him or her from distress, from a, a situation of struggle and suffering and darkness. And so it praises God for uh, such action. And you can see in Psalm 32, we'll see in detail in a moment, that the psalmist is 
thanking God for delivering him, this is David in this case, delivering him from the physical and spiritual distress that comes when sin goes unconfessed. So it's a psalm of thanksgiving, but it gives us a window into this uh, very vivid and recent struggle in the heart and in the body of David when he kept silent and did not confess his sin. So if you haven't already turned there, we'll be in Psalm 32, and we'll read the whole psalm. It's 11 verses, and I'll be reading in the ESV. So if you could turn there, we will read it and walk through it section by section. So Psalm 32, a maskil, which is either a skillful song or a song meant to instruct, a maskil of David. And friends, as you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You may be seated. What a poem, Psalm 32, a poem that's quoted in the New Testament in the letters of Paul, a poem that's all about forgiveness and sin. There are 11 verses, but I'd like to study this psalm by breaking it up into five sections. The first section is a blessing, which we see in verses 1 and 2. This blessing that introduces the kind of thesis or theme of the psalm. And then this blessing leads to a story, a narrative, where the psalmist is propelled back in memory to a recent time when he struggled with the debilitating effects of sin. And so he tells us this story and what he did. From this story related to it, we have a therefore and an exhortation. The psalmist It tells us, he tells his listeners, his readers, to do something in response. 
And after this, we get a promise. Uh, Assuming that the readers or listeners take seriously the exhortation, we get a promise of what God will do for us. And then lastly, there is a conclusion that largely mirrors the blessing from before, and that is meant to lead us from despair into worship. So let's jump right in then, friends, with this first section, this blessing in verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one, dot, 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 blessed is the man, dot, dot, dot. This ought to remind you of a passage that we looked at recently in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what we call the Beatitudes. In the sermon review, we talked about how Beatitudes are all over the Old Testament. It's nothing new to the New Testament. And so here we have a few Beatitudes. Blessed is the person who does a certain thing. The, the fundamental structure, the kind of skeleton which uh, undergirds Hebrew poetry is what's called parallelism. And the idea is that certain items, images, even lines are, are set in relation to each other, and it's up to us to explore what exactly that relation is. And that relationship between lines and ideas uh, creates unpredictable effects and often emotions and images in our head. So here we have four parallel statements. We have, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Friends, this isn't talking about four different situations. It's, it's not describing four distinguishable experiences or people. It's not as though the one whose transgression is forgiven is different from the one whose sin is covered, etc. This is four ways of saying the same thing, piling on language to create this overwhelming experience that we can relate to. Blessed is the one not who has never sinned. Did you catch that? It says, blessed, favored, is the one who has sinned, yes, has sinned, has transgressed the law of God, has committed iniquity, who at one point had deceit in their their spirit, but who has been forgiven and cleansed of these things. Blessed is the one who has gone to the depths and experienced the the toxicity of sin, but who has been healed from it, released from it. That is the blessing that opens this poem. This is a psalm of David, and we've gone through 1 Samuel, and you've probably read 2 Samuel, and so you can imagine a number of situations uh, for which David needed forgiveness. doesn't say, but David was a man, yes, after God's own heart, but a man who struggled deeply with sin. What we then get is a narrative where David looks back at a recent episode in his life and, and describes it for us as a kind of story. He says in verse 3, When I kept silent, 
my bones wasted away or became worn out. In parallel to this is I was groaning all day long. Parallel to this is your hand was heavy upon me. And then the fourth item, my strength or my, my sap, my juices were dried up within me as in a drought, a, a hot period in the summer. So David has sinned, perhaps repeatedly, has become stuck in a pattern of sin, and he, and he hasn't acknowledged it to the Lord and as a result, his, his bones are wasting away. Friends, this is poetry, this is figurative language, but you can probably imagine a time in life when there were things within that you felt that you needed to say, you needed to confess to someone, to the Lord, and it actually affected your body. So I don't think this language is entirely figurative. This poison was within me, he says. I, I wasn't letting it out. Didn't give it an outlet. And as a result, my bones were wasting away. I was groaning all day long. He says, the hand of the Lord, a mighty hand which often saves, but also, as we see in 1 Samuel, a hand that inflicts Plagues and afflictions as a form of judgment. That hand is said to be pressing heavily upon David. He's feeling this pressure. And lastly, the image of a plant in the summer, a plant which normally is full of water, vitality, and it's become desiccated. It's become dry and almost lifeless. That is what happens, David says, when you sin and you don't confess it. You don't open up a space where it can be released. The story goes on, though, in verse 5. From this position of despair, this bodily ache, he says, I acknowledged, I made known my sin to you. More parallelism. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then in the fourth line, we're expecting just a restatement of those three ideas. Another way of saying I confess my sins. But no, what do we get? It says you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. The first two sections have these four parallel ideas. We're expecting the same thing, and then boom, God has forgiven David. From this, then, we get an exhortation, verses 6 through 7. This isn't just a story we're to hear and be entertained by. This is a story that's meant to change our lives. It's meant to impel us to do something. And so he says, he addresses everyone who is godly. <laughs> this is wild, friends, because David's talking about what to do when, when you are drowning in sin. So if he's talking to the godly, wouldn't it not make any sense? The godly don't sin. They do. Of course they do. 
The godly are not people who don't sin, but they are people who, when they sin, they acknowledge their sin to the Lord. Perhaps not immediately, but once its effects are felt, they make known their sin to God. He encourages the godly to offer prayer, supplication to the Lord at a time when he may be found. This is sharp language. It suggests that if the godly don't do this, there may come a time where the Lord is difficult to find. While he can be found, while he extends his hand to you, confess your sin to him. And if you do this, this rush of great waters, an image for uh, difficult circumstances, trial and distress, all of that, those flooding waters will not reach you. David describes the Lord as he's running from Saul who's trying to kill him. He describes the Lord as a hiding place, uh, a preservation from trouble. The Lord, he says, surrounds me with shouts of deliverance, an army surrounding David with shouts of deliverance. In verses 8 through 9, then, we get a promise. If you take your sin seriously and trust the Lord enough to give it to Him, the Lord will continue to instruct you. This I, this first person, is, is the Lord speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll keep my eye upon you. The psalm itself is a form of instruction as we're being told how to deal with sin when we're in the thick of it. As we continue to acknowledge our sin to the Lord, He will guide us and lead us with His eye upon us. And He says, let me lead you. Do not be like a a mule or a horse which is stubborn. He says, let, let me lead you. Trust me. Finally, in the last two verses, we get a conclusion to match the introduction. We get almost a proverbial statement in verse 10, this general statement, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Not those who commit sin, but those who commit sin and do not Acknowledge it to the Lord, who do not confess it. If you refuse to confess your sin and you keep on sinning, you will experience many sorrows. But he says, steadfast love, loving kindness, surrounds the one who sins, but trusts the Lord enough to confess sin to him. Finally, in verse 11, we are led into worship. We are led from this place of bones wasting away, of God's hand being heavy upon us, being silent, to shouting for joy, rejoicing and being glad in the Lord. Friends, this is a psalm that names and faces our sin. It doesn't look away from it. It acknowledges the depth of our brokenness, But it models for us this trust in the Lord that gives sin to Him so that He can take away our disease. 
So I can't imagine preaching on Psalm 32 and not providing a time for us to engage in confession ourselves. I'd like you to audibly tell your neighbor the sins you've committed. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Um, you can just tell me after. Your, no, I'm not going to do that either. No, um, in your bulletins, you'll find an insert on the front of which there's a description of Lent. And if you flip it over, you'll see three sections. Another image of confession is that of excavation. Like you're at an archaeological dig and you're just digging beneath the soil, seeing layer upon layer of civilization. I want you to imagine these layers, these sections, as archaeological layers of your heart. Now, the top section should be easy. We, we often comfortably live in this surface space. We can think of the complaints and worries and bad attitudes we have in life. Those are easy enough to list. But beneath that are these core core lies, core attitudes, core beliefs that undergird some of those surface issues. And even beneath that are these fundamental habits, tendencies that infect our souls. And so friends, I don't expect us to perfectly get to the bottom of our hearts this morning. But Lent is a 40-day period in which that is the goal. And so as the music plays, I want us to take a few minutes to pray that the Lord would excavate our souls, help us diagnose our disease, and then I'll close our time with some words of encouragement, some words of hope.
the scribes and Pharisees then brought Jesus a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And then he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. When they heard it, they went away one by one, one by one. And Jesus was left alone with the woman. And after a time, he stood up and said, Woman, where where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I, neither do I. In a book on prayer, Tyler Staten, pastor in Portland, Oregon, writes, he writes, I know painfully and personally what it feels like to all of a sudden be aware of my sin. Falling on my face, defeated, while accusing voices pound in my skull. I am not a man of clean hands and a pure heart. My life, rather, is a mockery of who I want to be and wish I was. But there in the midst of my exposed shame, I hear the rabbi whisper to me, Neither do I. Neither do I. Friends, what if every time we find ourselves face down in shame like that, it's a chance for us to hear, neither do I. This week, the second week of Lent, I want you to take that sheet of paper And I want you to complete it if you need to, but I want you to look at the layers of brokenness in your life every day if possible. And even if you don't feel like it, even if you don't feel emotional or spiritual every time, I want you to try to give these things to Jesus. The language in this psalm, this word forgive, can also be translated carry away. We give something to Jesus that he carries away as far as the east is from the west. Friends, Jesus, God himself became human, experienced the brokenness of humanity, and on the cross he signals to us that he can absorb fully all of the brokenness that we have to give. Friends, do not remain in your brokenness. Name it, face it, and give it to Jesus. Together as a church, this Lenten season, let us do this. Let me close with this. 
Acknowledge your sin to Jesus. Do not cover it up. And remember that in the end, grace wins. Let's pray. Lord, even those of us who have been Christians for decades, we need your forgiveness. We need the, the balm of your gospel, the basic truth that your grace penetrates to depths that we don't even know about. Please, Lord, crack us open this Lent, this season, as we journey with you in the wilderness. Make us aware of the core issues, the core lies in our hearts, and help us to give them over to you. We thank you, and we need you, and we pray that you would drench us with your Spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.